Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. And we'll be reading Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. While you're doing that, you probably noticed, and you probably notice every year at this time of year, that Jesus hits the news a lot. Jesus typically, at this time of year, gets a lot of publicity, doesn't he? Movies, social media, television, books. He's been on the front of Time magazine many, many times, more times than we could count. And folks chime in with opinions about who Jesus is, what he did, what happened On Good Friday, what happened on Easter Sunday, really? Who was he? What did he come to do? All kinds of opinions come at us this time of year. And as you might imagine, pastors. I've been a pastor for a while and lived to tell about it. I love being a pastor. I get a lot of questions at this time of year. What really happened on Good Friday? What happened on Easter Sunday? Why does God not answer my prayers? Why do I suffer the way I do? I'm not sure that I really believe in Jesus, Pastor. I'm struggling with doubt. We could go on and on. I think I've learned, I hope I've learned some things through the years, but one of the things I have learned is one of the best places to start to answer any difficult question about Jesus Who he is, what he did, and what he continues to do is to go into the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus on the night before he dies. To go into the garden. Why? Because it's there that death begins to come down upon Jesus. And Jesus is forced to make the most difficult decision ever made on earth. Jesus is confronted with a question, will you drink this cup for them or not? Look at the furnace. <laughs> look at the trial. Look at the struggles. Look at the suffering that's coming. Will you drink this cup for them or not. Jesus has to go through the cup to the cross, and in a very real sense, this account that we're about to read tells us as much or even more about the cross than the account of the cross does. Because it's Jesus, in a very real sense, face to face with his. Father, will you drink this cup? Will you do this? And he has to go through the cup to the cross. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, 
sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. As we prepare to come to the table, I want to focus on two things, just two things in this passage. One, the experience of hell in the Garden of Gethsemane. Two, The victory, as has already been mentioned in this service, right at the outset, the victory of love. The experience of hell, the victory of love. First, the experience of of hell. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he had a psalm in his head, in his heart, and on his lips. The psalm is one of the most challenging psalms in the entire Psalter. It's Psalm 137, and it's the story of a man who has been separated from God. It's a story of a man who has experienced the destruction of Jerusalem, and now he's in exile, and he can't go and be in the presence of God and worship at the temple. He's separated from God. Jerusalem has been conquered, it's been destroyed by Babylon, and the psalmist cries out, if you know the psalm, for justice, for judgment, for vengeance on his enemies. And now we have Jesus riding into Jerusalem, looking at Jerusalem, knowing that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed again. Once again, it's going to be destroyed, this time by the Romans, and echoing this psalm, Psalm 137, he says in Luke chapter 19, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. 
He wept over it for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another. He's predicting the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 under the Romans. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and he knows this is the city that's going to put him to death. Jerusalem will again be destroyed. He's going to go to the cross and yet Jesus, what does Jesus do? There's no word of of judgment or justice or vengeance. He weeps. No anger, just tears. And we find him a few days later alone in the dark in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see for the first time a Jesus that we haven't seen before. Jesus has always been predicting. He's been calming storms. He's been telling parables. He's been in control. He's been confronting the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law, the skeptics. He's been calming storms. But now we see him overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with sorrow as though death is coming down upon him. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. And you notice, don't miss this, he doesn't want to be alone. Come with me. Be with me. Comfort me, disciples. Stay, comfort me, Peter. Be with me. Stay awake. Be alert. Remain here and watch with me. But they are sleeping. Have you ever known that? Have you ever experienced that? They're sleeping from sorrow. Sleeping in sorrow, says Luke 22. Some some versions of Luke chapter 22, where he's mentioned this sleeping from sorrow, say they were exhausted. The disciples were exhausted from sorrow. And he goes to his father and he prays a prayer unlike any other prayer that has ever been prayed. And this is Jesus, fully God and fully man. Jesus falls to the ground. In agony, Luke tells us, sweating blood. It's almost as though he's in shock. And three times... Do I have to do this? Do I have to do this? Do I have to do this? He is now beginning to see, to taste, to experience what's going to happen to him on the cross. And he's alone. He hesitates. He shudders. He questions. This is a Jesus we haven't seen before. Jesus knows, you know, the the imagery of cup, by the way, in ancient literature is time and time again something that points to suffering. It points to death. Some of you may remember the great uh, story of 
of Socrates drinking the, being forced to drink the cup of poison and, and dying. In the Old Testament, time and time again, the cup points to, it represents wrath and punishment and judgment. Ezekiel 23 speaks of it like this. It is deep and large. It is filled with sorrow and desolation. Isaiah 51 says, This cup is a cup of wrath and staggering. Jeremiah 25 calls it the wine of wrath. We could go on. Jesus Christ is now facing the wrath of God, the judgment of God that we deserve. One commentator puts it this way, the dreadful sorrow out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny or shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering. No, it's this. It is rather the experience of alienation from God and judgment upon sin. Jesus came to the Father in prayer and found hell opened before him. And he staggered. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way, none of God's children have ever had a cup like this set before them. The divine, infinite justice and judgment of God that human evil deserves is about to come down on him. What will he do? What will he do? And Jonathan Edwards goes on and and talks about this victory of love that Christ experiences now and he accomplishes now in the garden and he sets up this dialogue before the Father and the Son. Let me read just a little bit of this to you. It is as though God the Father said, here's the cup that I want you to drink unless you will give it up and leave them to perish. Will you take it and drink it for them or not? Here's the furnace into which you are about to be cast. If they are to be saved, or they will perish, if you don't endure this for them, what will you do? Is your love such that you will go on? Christ's soul was overwhelmed at the thought, but he did not say to himself, why should I? Why should I plunge myself into such dreadful judgment for sinners who can never pay me back? Why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, cast myself into such a furnace? Why should I? Why should I yield myself to be crushed for people who don't love me? Such, however, was not the language of Christ's heart, but on the contrary, his love held out. He yielded himself to the the will of God, took the cup, drank it, and went to the cross. And hanging on the cross, he says what? Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. It is finished, and with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe you've heard that passage. One paraphrase puts it this way. You know what God did? God put all of our wrongs on him who never did anything wrong so that we could be right with him. God put all of our wrongs on him who never did anything wrong so that we could be right with him. That's what happens in the garden with the cup and the cross. Now, a couple of applications before we come to the table. So that's profound. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's amazing that Christ has done this for us. What does it look like, lived? What does it look like between Sundays? What does it look like? What does this look like in my minivan on Monday? So what? I want us to see just a a, a couple of things, several things, that we can learn from Jesus. And we could go on and on. We won't. (laughs) we're going to come to the table. Jesus shows us in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. You know what Jesus shows us? He shows us what prayer looks like. He shows us what prayer looks like. Jesus comes into the presence of the Father for who he is, as he is. He doesn't clean himself up and try to get all the right words right. He comes from where he is and says, help Do I have to do this? He prays from where he is. Jesus also shows us what obedience looks like. This is hard. (laughs) This is hard. Do I have to do this? But you know what, Father? I will trust you. Your will be done. I'll trust you with what you've called me to do. He shows us what suffering looks like. Look, most of us don't know when we go through suffering. We're, we're not sure all the time. Why am I struggling and suffering the way I am? Remember this. Nobody suffered like Jesus. Jesus suffered for you in the past. And he is with you in your suffering now. What more could we want from a Savior? How would you improve upon that? Jesus suffered for you in the past and he's with you in your suffering now, today. Also notice, even Jesus needs, please don't miss this, even Jesus needs fellowship. He goes in to speak to the Father, into the presence of the Father, but he takes his friends with him. It's not just God and me, it's God and us. We're in this together. Jesus needs fellowship with the Father and He needs fellowship and friendship with the disciples. He needs their support. He needs them to stay awake. And by the way, notice, when they fall asleep, what does He do? He forgives them. They're not there for Him. But he needs the Father, and he needs them, but he forgives them. Even though they fall asleep. Finally, the, the 
as we go into the garden, as we go into the garden with Jesus, this is the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate object lesson in what love is. This is what love looks like. Look, why are people at the beginning of the week cheering and at the end of the week they're fleeing? Because at the end of the week there's a cost. At the end of the week it could cost them their lives to follow Jesus. And most of them desert Him. You see, God doesn't just say, I love you. He doesn't just say, I feel love for you. He does something about it. He sends his son and sacrifices his son in our place. He gives his life for you. He gives his life for you. Try this. Go to 1 Corinthians 13, the classic passage on the definition of love, and look at verses 4 through 8 and replace the word Jesus for the word love, and you'll have it. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist upon His own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but He rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, Jesus never fails. That is the victory of love. As we come to the table tonight and you hold the bread that points to the broken body, remember, please remember that it is that broken body that assures His love for you will never be broken. It's the broken body that assures the love will never be broken. He will never leave you or forsake you. And as you hold that cup, and you take that cup and you put it to your lips, remember it's because He drank the cup in the garden of wrath that you can drink the cup of love. That you can drink the cup of blessing and you can have, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone, if you're a believer, if you've run to Christ and trusted in Him in faith alone, that is the love that you've always been looking for. You don't have to earn it. You can never lose it. And it lasts forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider, as we reverently consider Jesus in the garden, Jesus on the cross, we are, and we should be, sobered. Um, we are, as, as we reflect just for a few minutes, upon Jesus falling to the ground and going to the cross. Jesus saying, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, whose friends have deserted him and fallen asleep, 
saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. We pray, Lord, that as we continue to reflect on Good Friday, we would remember what's good about it, the victory of love. The Father sending the Son to take our place so that we might have eternal life, eternal hope, eternal comfort, eternal fulfillment, eternal joy, eternal happiness, eternal life. We pray all of these things in the name of Him who came such a great, great distance for us.